Hello, Jason here. Before I start the podcast, I would just like to share some news. The Brock Architect podcast is now raising money for the Architects Benevolence Society. And I have set a target of £1,500 by December the 15th, 2023. Please consider donating as you never know when you yourself would need help. Links in the show notes. Now back to the podcast. I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broken in debt and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband or significant other earn substantially more than you, which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for? Or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, surviving month to month or facing financial difficulties, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? We need to talk about the impact of debt, but also more importantly, how to get out of debt. And I need you to come forward to make this podcast possible. Welcome to The Brook Architect. You will hear from real architects with very real problems. And maybe some will offer some real solutions so that you never become a broke architect. Please share, subscribe and comment to support the channel. I have with me today Ramesh Baig of Ramesh Baig Design, an architect who lives and practices architecture in Karachi, Pakistan. Now, Ramesh is also chapter chair at Institute of Architects Pakistan, IAP, and teaches part-time at Indus Valley School of Art and Architecture. And Ramesh is also a board member at the Indus Valley School and has been involved in the Architects Regional Council Asia, which is Arcasia. Firstly, welcome to the first season of the Brock Architects. Ramesh, and I just want to, um, you know, welcome you here. Thank you, uh, Jason. It's lovely to be here at the podcast. Uh, as you said, uh, my name is Ramesh Beg. I'm a practicing architect, uh, practicing here in Karachi, Pakistan, uh, the hustling, bustling uh, city of Karachi of over 20 million people. Um, so I've located here in Karachi, been practicing here, actually lived there all my life. Wow, that's incredible. I think my first question to you is, um, and, and people will be really interested in this, is is in Pakistan, how long um, does it take to qualify to become an architect? You know, and I, I know in the UK it's seven years, but it's, it, might be, it might be different where you are. That's right. Uh, so we have a very, uh, we have a straightforward five-year degree. So there's a BARC, and uh, you study for five years, and that's the only 
form of uh, you know degree offered in the various schools in Pakistan. So there is no part one or two or any break or as such. Uh, students are expected to do internships uh, for six weeks, uh, but that's all during the winter or the summer break, right? and uh, they just uh, they just go ten semesters through. And it's very interesting here because in Pakistan you will find architecture being taught either in engineering schools or architecture being taught in art schools. So architects find themselves in a unique position where they're either too too technical for the art school or they are like too artsy for the engineering school. <laughs> so they're always unique in whichever whichever setting they are. And uh, so, for example, I went to uh, the Indus Valley School of Art and Architecture. So that was predominantly an art and a liberal art and an architecture school. So we had, in our five years, our foundation was uh, uniform. So everybody, whether you were enrolled in graphic design or textile design or fine art or interior design or architecture, you did the same foundation year. Right. So that one year gave you that you know overall base, uh, and then from there you kind of moved on to your specialization. And it will be of course very different in an engineering school because you know these uh, art and liberal art uh, courses are not offered, so that their trust is slightly different. Yeah. So when you get uh, graduates out in the market, it's very interesting to see that comparison. If, uh, you know which school have they actually come from because their strengths and their focuses are are unique ah that that's a re- really interesting nuance um there um i think that it, it, it's similar in some aspects um say for the uk where you get some universities that are classed as being very good technically and then like you say it's uh, you get some universities that are known for their um, artistic training and, and flair that I, I did not know that and and so that you do the five years and then you know when can you actually call yourself uh, and use the title architect right so then of course we have uh, we have a regulatory body which is the Pakistan Council of Architects and Town Planners yeah so you have to register with them and um, only after registration with them uh, you're able to legally call yourself an architect and that happens now it's actually uh, we're undergoing that process so it's still in its infancy now that registration is based uh, on an exam so you actually have to appear for a professional exam and then upon clearing that exam um, only then you can call yourself an architect and this happens within a couple of years of uh, you know graduation question for people would be it's interesting i think to hear from people from around the world is you know what is the average salary that an architect can make in your country and maybe we have to convert it to dollars that let's say for someone who's who's been qualified say for five years it's a tricky question for you to ask but it's it's probably one that people are interested in actually because of the current scenario this becomes trickier so uh, Pakistan is currently going through uh, some financial issues in terms of, um, you know, we are losing a lot of value to our currency. There is hyperinflation all over the world. So that is impacting us as well. 
and uh, doubled by the fact that our currency is devaluing. So it it is really posing a very uh, you know difficult uh, scenario where people's income, even though in numbers, remain the same, but its value over the last couple of years has actually gone down because what you can purchase out of what you're earning has actually, you know, the, as in the prices skyrocketed. So it's not, it's uh, the value to, of the Pakistani rupee is suffering as, as a result. Yeah. So say, for example, you know, like the first time that uh, we met, which was in 2018, yeah. Pakistan's uh, value to the dollar was around 130 rupees. So one USD was about 130 rupees. Right now, it's trading close to around 220. So, wow. you know, just in like four years, there has been an exponential growth uh, of that currency versus ours. It's, uh, so say, for example, if somebody was earning what you could have converted as maybe uh, $1,000 $1, a month, say, mm. for example, automatically, you know, he's they're not making $1,000 a yeah. month. That same amount is now worth uh, $600 a month. So that's a big, uh, you know, big, big difference. I just thought I'd expand this to five years just to show you how the dollar and the Pakistani rupee has uh, performed. So back on the 16th of March 2018, for $1, you would only need 110 rupees. If we go to today's date of the 10th of March 2023, you would need 280 Pakistani rupees for one US dollar. And that is actually pushing a lot of uh, younger architects and younger professionals, not just in architecture, but all around, to go into it on their own. So, you know, you're seeing a lot more entrepreneurs uh, coming out. You're seeing a lot of architects who are now working as contractors uh, to, you know, make more money that way. Uh, seems like uh, it's easier for the upcomers to uh, make a better living while doing turnkey sort of projects yeah. where they are along with services they're also doing the uh, the construction and the build so it's it's a very interesting dynamic what's been going on in the last five five odd years and it's going to take a couple of years more for things to settle down and for us to say okay, okay what direction is it is it going yeah so so say maybe uh, just to simplify, you know, this discussion that we had, say four years ago, a five to six year, uh, um, you know, experienced architect was making about uh, $900 to $1,000 a month. Mm. And now because of inflation and all that has gone down actually to say $600 or $500 a month. Wow. So it's, it's, it's sad that way yeah. and challenging. I mean, is it just, just to finish off on that one, is that seen to be a good salary, Pakistan, for example? You know, I don't know how it compares to a doctor's salary, for, for example. Yes and no. You see, uh, there are, of course, discrepancies as well. So again, Pakistan is a fairly large country. The urban setup is very different to say, you know, the semi-rural or the smaller cities. 
So you will have a lot of discrepancy in the pay scale. Yes. So say, for example, maybe an architect in Karachi is doing a lot better than a doctor in, say, a smaller city like Peshawar or Rawalpindi, for example. But uh, if you do a like-to-like comparison, I would think that uh, doctor salary would be higher. My next question for you is, it's what software do you use to design your building? Um, and it, that, that software might differ depending on the various different design stages. Okay, so AutoCAD, for example, is something that is taught uh, universally across all schools here. So architects get a very early, uh, you know, hands-on knowledge of that particular software, which they continue uh, into it later as well. Uh, of course, SketchUp has, uh, you know, uh, become quite popular in, in the past few years as well. People mm-hmm. use it to get uh, their ideas across fairly, fairly quickly. Sure. Uh, I mean, and I'm speaking in terms of, you know, the last 20, 20 years. I mean, I've graduated. Uh, I've been now practicing uh, for about 20 years now. You know, when I joined uh, for my first job before I started my own practice, that was the largest office in Karachi, for example. Yeah. So at that level, even there were maybe two or three CAD operators at that time, 20 years ago, and the rest was still happening manually. <laughs> and you had these, uh, you know, these draftmen who were with that company for for so many years, and uh, they were truly artists. You know, they could like uh, uh, create these beautiful drawings and. Uh, yeah. And then I saw it in in front of me how they started feeling, you know, that pressure from the younger CAD technicians who didn't know much about the art of drafting, who did not really understand too much uh, about what an architecture drawing is supposed to be. Mm. But they were so much quicker at adapting to the computer and being able to catch up. So I, I saw that tussle firsthand. And uh, yes, of course, now it's all over. Now you do not find any office which has anyone doing hardly anything manually. And um, it's also funny because, you know, sometimes when I have a meeting with a client and, you know, I present them, uh, you know, our printed drawings and, uh, you know, they always ask, can we take these, you know, (laughs) with us? And, you know, I have to tell them, yeah, I mean, it's very nice of you that you're uh, you know, asking permission, but the value of the print has is, is zero. Yeah. I mean, when I used to make a drawing with hand, I would be very careful. Yeah, I have a, a photocopy or a copy, only that I would issue because, you know, that was so precious because you had actually <laughs> put in so much time. But with, with CAD and with computers, I mean, you can just, uh, you can just keep on taking uh, that many printouts. Uh, and of course, Rivet is also trying to find its way here. Mm. So there are a lot, Autodesk themselves are trying to have official workshops. They're encouraging. So when I was uh, uh, chairing uh, the Institute of Architects Pakistan Karachi chapter, so I had this initiative for the members where we were giving them these courses at a very subsidized rate so that our members could get familiar with, uh, with uh, Rivet and uh, try to take advantage of uh, this this modern software. Yeah, that's fantastic. Next question I have is, you know, you said that you've got your own your own practice. I'm just interested in the type of the type of work that you generally focus on. 
Okay, so if if I have to give a very simple answer, I would say that majority of our work is residential, mm. but I would also like to give a more interesting uh, viewpoint to it. Mm. In Pakistan or in generally in Karachi, with our practice, it's a lot more client based rather than project type based. So over the course of time, I've developed a repertoire with quite a few number of people who enjoyed working with me. Who've enjoyed the kind of output that I've given them, the time that I've given them, and the kind of design that I do. Maybe they came to me for a house initially, but say if they have an office building coming up in a couple of years, they would again come to me yeah. because they already have that relationship established. If they have, if they're thinking of venturing into, you know, some sort of a fast food restaurant or something like that, these things have happened. They will come to me again. So similarly, it's it's really about relationships yeah. and uh, you know the networking that you have established and how well you know you you value those relationships so that you want those people or people with those references to keep coming back to you. Linked to this this next question is is what you've said there. It's just I'm interested on how how your practice does win new work. You know how did you get your first first client uh my first client is a very interesting story so i told you i was working uh, in one of the largest offices in karachi and uh, you know when uh, my son was my first son was about to be born and that is when i thought it's the right time before i get into you know the pamper bills and mm-hmm. this doctor bill and that bill uh, before i get bogged down if i need to venture out onto my own this is really the time because otherwise you just uh, There are too uh, too many responsibilities for you to be able to take that risk. So I uh, so I decided that you know I'm going to be on my own, and uh, I went to just to meet my old boss. Uh, you know, find out how he was doing. He was sitting with a couple of people who wanted to get the house designed. He, of course, it's a larger office. They were very busy, so they said you know it was just like a matter of convenience. They said. This guy used to work with us for five years. He's excellent. You take good care of you. Why don't you get your house designed from him? So that's wow. how you know it kind of started. <laughs> <laughs> and and is is and is that generally how you know you keep winning more work? Is it is it based on you know on your reputation? Exactly. So uh, of course you know uh, right now a lot of people would say. that social media is becoming such an important tool in you know projecting yourself and uh, you know using that means i am still uh, you know in the mid about should i really go deep into that route or not mm. uh, so so far yes it has really been word of mouth it has really been you know about uh, almost like a 6 degree of separation okay you know you design something for somebody so then there's somebody who has visited and seen and they liked it so then they would come to you and etc etc so you know it kind of works like that and uh, it would be funny to see you know how that first project really is the catalyst you know how that random encounter led to so many other things in the yes. future because this happened so that happened so that happened but reputation of of the architect is i think it's always key competitions are fantastic way and i wish we had a lot more of them in pakistan i feel that we just do not have as many competitions as there should be because that is a fantastic way of new offices of you know younger 
people to quickly make a name for themselves and establish themselves as like a serious, uh, serious party to consider. So that is something that we do see happen internationally, and we do miss it here. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I think you're right. It absolutely is, and and you know, ha- it, it must be very difficult for young practices that set up to try and win win that work. And a competition's one of the great ways um, of doing that. My next question: I just want to understand what sort of contracts that you you generally use, and you know, do you do you take the lead role? until it's built or is it more of a um as as we say over in the uk a design and build and um, where you know you'll do prepare the drawings and it's 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 sort of handed over to the contractor and you're not really involved you know i'm just interested how that works uh so you will find uh various types of contracts as far as this is concerned it also depends on the kind of um who is the initiator of the project so say if it's um it's an individual who's getting his house made. So then he's coming to you, so he would expect you to take it all the way. Mm. So even though you are involved in a consultancy role, I mean, you're supervising, rather you're reviewing the construction process, it is still the contractor's responsibility, but you are making periodic visits mm. to make sure that everything is happening as per your vision and as per your design. Because the client trusts you and that's why he's hired you and he wants you to be that involved. Another, the exact opposite is when there are builders who are investors who are just building for business. Mm. So then they, of course, are trying to, uh, you know, do it quickly. Uh, They want everything in one go. They don't want you, there is no client as such for design review or for making changes or for moving things around. So in that regard, they would want to have a contract with you. Okay, look, it's upfront. You work on it for like the two months or the three months. You give us one to hundred percent every drawing, and then you know, see you next time. So that that also happens. Yeah. So it really depends on who the initiator of that contract is and what sort of service is he requiring from you. And of course, I told you a new a new. Uh, uh, type is also taking shape where these younger architects are also uh, taking it on turnkey. So where they will be providing their design services and then they're actually uh, doing the contracting as well and taking it right right to the end. Oh, that's, that's, that's fantastic. So, yeah, I guess they, they can keep that quality, um, you know, from, from their initial designs right through till it's, it's com- complete and hand it over to the client. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky one because you know um, there are some areas of conflict of interest because architect being uh, you know the still considered to be the master builder mm. uh, you know as such and it's your so if if you are the one who has to keep an eye on the contractor for his quality and for his time and for all of that and if that is you yourself so there is a little bit of a conflict yeah. of interest there correct so but. What you're saying also makes sense. You have more control over the end end product that way. And as the younger lot will point out to you, it's a, it's actually a lot more uh, lucrative uh, way of doing things as well. Absolutely, and 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 thanks for pointing that one out as well. My next question is is probably quite a big one for you, for you. Um, you know, it, it's 
what are the current environmental challenges that you're faced within your country and when you're designing for? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think now is as good a time as any to have this question because as it was being reported, I think worldwide, that Pakistan suffered from like the worst case of flooding in the in this particular monsoon season. Millions of people were displaced, uh, you know, thousands have died. Billions uh, of rupees worth of damages to property, to, uh, to the crops, to agricultural fields. And I mean, you know, we're still we're still trying to slowly, slowly uh, restore things to normal. And this, you know, this global climate change and all of this that we've been hearing about maybe since the time that we were in college. And we really thought that, yes, it's very serious. And yes, we should do something about it. But it almost had that uh, that feel that, okay, it's probably going to skip our generation. It's probably going to be, you know, the next generation which will really face the brunt of it. And we will probably be spared uh, the consequences. But it, it doesn't seem that that's going to be the case. I think it's here. I think it's here in a big way. And uh, it's time to, you know, really wake up and figure out, uh, you know, what have we been doing wrong, how to rectify that, and then, of course, moving forward, ensuring that we do not make, uh, you know, all these mistakes. Now, it's very easier said than done, because, again, especially in a large uh, country like ours, which is fairly, uh, you know, an agriculture-based economy, so you have a lot of rural areas, you have a lot of villages where, uh, you know, the houses are not really made from um, permanent sort of materials. They are very prone to uh, the weather conditions and, uh, you know, flooding can really create uh, havoc for them. But because, you know, as I say, mother is the necessity of invention, uh, there are examples in Pakistan uh, there are many, uh, you know, there's some uh, many senior architects are working towards that. Our institute is trying to, uh, you know, help there as well. There are, at the Arcacia level, there is this Arcacia Emergency Architects, which has been set up with the sole purpose of quickly exchanging, you know, knowledge and data. Because sometimes you shouldn't, when you know, when an emergency hits, you should not really be reinventing the wheel. You should not be spending time. Uh, on that, you should begin to action quickly. Yes. So, what is the best way? Where the best way is to when you have a universal database where you know that look, this worked here, which is very similar to us. So if it worked here, it will work here. Yeah. And look, this is an example. This is what they tried to do. It was very ambitious, but it did not work hmm. because of X, Y, Z reason. So, we should not be, you know, attempting to do that. So that education not only for the professional but then the responsibility for the professional to impart it on the end user it, it has to be done in a different in a slightly different way otherwise uh, every time you know like uh, the flooding happened in 2011 at this scale last time so it happened after 10 years yeah maybe next time it will happen in five years and maybe after that it may happen every two years or something so you do not have the time, you do not have that resources to rebuild again and again. So you yeah. just have to make sure that you do what, what works. So these challenges are there. And then looking at it 
And so this is like the you know the philosophical, the bigger picture looking yeah. at that. But then when you're looking at it at individual project level, so there are a lot of other factors at play. Like I said, if, uh, I mean uh, the world over there is inflation, so prices of things are going up. It's impacting you know developing countries like Pakistan even more. So electricity, for example, has become very expensive. Everyone, you know, even the people who were not. Thinking of these terms before, okay, oh, I have to have insulation. Oh, I have to make sure that my glass has a particular UV rating. Oh, I need to say because you know people who were not feeling the pinch, even those people are now feeling the pinch because it has become really expensive. So this is first. It used to be only the architect who was trying to push it. Okay, look, you should do this insulation. You should do that. But now it's usually the first thing that comes from the client also. You know what? Uh, I wanted my room, my master bedroom, to be like this mansion size, but then I realized that I would need like four tons of air conditioning just to, you know, yes. keep it cool in the summer. So no, I don't want that. I want a smaller room. I only go there to sleep, yeah. so I don't, and I just need that area to be cool. So I would rather have a space which is easier to cool, cheaper to cool. So you know, people are. Thinking along these lines as well, so which is good. Uh, of course, whenever challenges come, creative people have to come up with you know better solutions, and uh, I think that's where uh, hopefully uh, the architects of the country can rise to the occasion and deliver for the public. Gone on about the the sort of rain and the flooding and. And you know, Pakistan is um, there's there's different extremes. You've got the mountains, cold there, but you've also got this intense sun. How you deal with sunlight, I think, is you know probably is is, is a, a real interest to, to to people. How do you deal with this with that intense yeah. sun? Uh, so I, uh, it's amazing, you know, because I've got family uh, in the UK, and whenever they would uh, come to Pakistan, uh, you know, the first thing they would want is to so so i mean i can't show you i can't turn the camera but if i turn the camera this way we are like about 200 feet from the shoreline so the beach is just about 200 feet away in that direction so whenever the relatives from the uk used to come the first thing they would want is to be out in the sun and you know enjoy that sunny day and we would be like what's wrong with these people <laughs> you know we want to be as far away from the scorching sun as as possible and then when it used to rain here, we used to be like, I mean, the half the city used to be dancing in the streets, enjoying the rain. And then at the same time, you know, they used to be like, you know, oh, it's raining, uh, you know, let's get indoors. It's uh, hideous weather, et cetera, et cetera. So those things, of course, very, yes, our sun is very harsh. The heat is something that we really have to deal with. And the biggest challenge, of course, is in in a in a city scenario, is how do you treat it in a short piece in a small piece of land? Mm. Because the original designs, um, you know, the traditional ones that we have inherited and the ones which we know work, uh, have a lot of overhang. So there is something known as a veranda. So a veranda has almost become like a a word in the architecture dictionary, which kind of comes from our part of the world where you have a room and then you have a semi-open space which is completely covered about 10 feet yes. deep or something like that completely blocks out the sun lets in the wind so it keeps the inside cool so now for example one can say yes ideally 
That's perfect. You know, as long as you have 10, 10 feet verandas on all sides, it's great. But hello, it's it's expensive. It's a, it's a city of 200 million people. You don't get that sort of footprint where you can have these, uh, you know, overhangs uh, yeah. uh, and verandas and all of that. So, you know, recessed windows is something that we do here a lot. Concrete jali, you know, those concrete screens yes. that we do to break the impact of the hard sun. Uh, we do even wooden jaffries as well. Those are again wooden screens, pergolas. Um, so all of these tools that we use, and they kind of also help in the elevation as well. So they become that very key tool, you know, that really that standout feature that you can really work with, and that's something that really makes your elevation stand out as well. So that opportunity it provides, but yes, uh, it is critical because. You know, uh, those modern uh, office buildings that we seem to have been inheriting from the West as well, just all curtain glass and yes. all of that, you know, becomes really counterproductive here because you're really increasing the heat gain of the building. So first you put that expensive glass, then you put even more expensive UV resistant films on it so that it kind of reflects back uh, all that heat. And then you're increasing your air conditioning which we are saying costs a lot. So yeah, so that that we think uh, uh, needs to happen. The plus side though, is that now that solar energy is becoming, uh, you know, quite the thing to do. So we can really, a place like Karachi and most of Pakistan can really take advantage of solar energy. Yes. So because we've got sun, you know, 80% uh, of the air is, is blazing away. Uh, the efficiency of the system is fantastic. And uh, what people usually worry about resources is that, oh, you know, it's scary that, you know, Jason also puts one and I put one, Jason's going to, you know, steal all my resources and I'll be left with nothing. But with the sun, I mean, you can put as many panels as you want. You know, Jason can have 100, I can have 200, doesn't matter. It's still going to, I'm still going to get as much as, you know, I... I plan for so it's uh, it's unlimited. I hope uh, that the government realizes this and creates a lot of subsidies yes. for it because there's a lot of potential. It will take so much pressure of them to provide actually electricity for you know this growing uh, uh, country and uh, if every rooftop really if you can visualize has uh, you know solar panels. We've used solar panels as shading devices for the roof as well. So instead of putting them flat on the roof, we put them like seven or eight feet high. Yeah. So they create like a shaded sitting area. Not only does it provide you the solar energy, but it also protects your roof from the direct impact of the, it insulates, it creates that as well. So, so no. these are the kind of things that we're trying to explore these days. And, uh, there is definitely a lot of potential. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting you said that about you know you can you could use them in a new design um, uh, and also you can retrofit them to existing buildings and it it, it seems to me is a really good solution one of one of the solutions to uh, you know help w mitigate um, some of the energy issues that you face. The the next one is so we've gone through gone through environmental um, challenges. But it's also I'm really interested in the cultural 
um, issues that you encounter on a day-to-day basis. You know, making it clear it, it's, it's about the cultural issues when you're d- designing and constructing a building. Well, I don't know, but I think we should have like a, a similar podcast session where we can all discuss what contractors are like in every country. So, you know, when we end up uh, realizing that they're the same, no matter where they are, or do we have a special breed, uh, you know, in different parts of the world. So in terms of culture, I think Pakistan um, has this challenge for the labor force. That is something which probably may be unique uh, or maybe unique to most developing countries where the labor is mostly uneducated and uh, they're usually not uh, skilled through an institution. They're usually skilled on the job. So, you know, they kind of learn. So it's like the guy has been working on a site for a couple of years and that's really where he's picked up, you know, all his skill. So, so that, uh, I mean, there are, of course, schools. There are, of course, institutions where people can get these skills and become good at them. But they are not, uh, they're not like the standard and they're not in a majority. So that changes, that whole culture is, uh, and I think that also lends um, to why architects are finding it successful to do turnkey projects because the client or whoever the project builder is, he's getting an educated person to take him, you know, all the way through and he does not have to worry with the with the labor class as such, people who are difficult to communicate to, sometimes even they don't understand the language, uh, you know, you're speaking or they can't read the drawings which are usually made in English, but they can't, uh, you know, read English. So these sort of issues are there as well. So culturally, from a construction point of view, I would say that this would be something which is different. Uh, clients, of course, here are fantastic. Um, uh, Pakistan, uh, I think architecture industry is heavily reliant on on the elite even now. So you do get to meet a lot of people who have these, you know, fantastical ideas of how they want you to create, you know, their dreams. And then they have not only the resources uh, to do that, but also the will and the time. So, so that way the culture is very interesting. Uh, you will get a lot of uh, uh, you will get a lot of family business. So say if uh, you know if you've come and uh, you and your wife have hired me to design for you, and if things work out, this, there's a there's a culture that your first cousin would also want me to you know do his house and do it better than yours. So he would be <laughs> like you know his was his was you know 200 square feet here. You know let's it'll be great if mine can be 250 or you know something like that. So you have those uh, those interesting uh, things happening at times as well. Sometimes joint families are also getting their houses built. So those also provide very interesting inputs. So they would come separately, you know, for their portion, but they would be more concerned in finding out what the other portion is looking like and what their requirements are. So that culture is also very amusing at times. I enjoy it. I mean, it's, it can be fun. And people, you know, I mean, generally, again, because it's a residential, uh, I mean, I would say majority are residential projects that we do, they become so personal. So you really are uh, so heavily involved with that family. 
for that two years or you know that around that time and uh, you have to develop a relationship where uh, you know, you're almost like a confidant and you're almost like uh, guiding them or telling them educating them sometimes that maybe this is how you think you want to live but maybe this is not how you would end up living so yeah. you know build how you would live rather than how you think you may want to because then the house may not not be something that that you are comfortable in and just 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 lastly before we leave that one are they are, are clients interested in you know flexibility in the design to so say rather than moving from what like we do we tend to in in the uk anyway we'll we'll move into one house small house start they call them starter homes where you move out from the city into the country or is it yeah. is it a case of whereby you know you will build the your house and you will stay there all of your life and just adapt it I'm just interested in that sort of thing. You will get a bit of both. Here mm. you have to realize that uh, building a house is becoming very, very expensive here. So, you know, the land value has uh, skyrocketed. Uh, of course, with the inflation, uh, building materials have also become very expensive. So, it is becoming challenging from that point of view. But Yes, keeping those things in mind, you will find people who are thinking of 20 years. So they're thinking of building today, but they have kind of mapped out what their family, yeah. uh, you know, setup would be like for the next 20 years. And they're kind of building to say to with minor adjustments or something like that. How can we make this house work for that, yeah. that sort of time period? And of course, um, it's not always the case. You will always find, uh, I mean, there's a lot of migration here. So you will find a lot of scenarios where this family has built, you know, this it's a couple who have four children and they've built this house for six people. And then out of the six people, they're assuming that two will get married and their families will also live there. But right. sometimes they're built like that. And sometimes they find out that when they went abroad for education, they never came back. So all of a sudden they have this huge house and there are only two people there. So, you know, the dynamics can change. Yes. So yes, you can plan for the future, but having that adaptability is something that is, uh, some people do put a premium on it. So say it would be a case like, look, design my house where I would like to stay on the ground floor, design my first floor for my son and his family. If he chooses to live with me, if he does not choose to live with me, make it in such a way that I can rent it out so I can get extra income. So, you know, you get these sort of requirements as well. Oh, that, that's fantastic. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's something that we in the UK need to consider more, you know, that the changing family needs as you move through your stages in life rather than moving um, <laughs> house all the time. It's, okay, the next one is... Um, are you a member of a professional body? I'm, I'm guessing yes. And if you are, how do they help you in your sort of day-to-day -day practice? Okay, so, I mean, you are aware that I am a member of the Institute of Architects Pakistan. So that is the, the primary uh, body, other than the regulatory body, which is PKP, uh, for architects in Pakistan. It is through the Institute of Architects Pakistan that we are members of Artesia, 
of the Commonwealth Association of Architects, or uh, you know, to SARCH, which is like a South Asian one, to UIA, which is international. So I have been heavily involved with IAP in the last decade. Uh, I have served as the honorary secretary for the national body, and I have served as uh, the chairman for the Karachi chapter. So uh, these positions I've held. And then through IAP, I was also the honorary secretary for Artesia, which is the Asian body. And it was through the event that we organized in Rome. That's where yes. you know we got to meet when we did that workshop in, in Rome with Marconi University. So, so those, these were fantastic opportunities. I mean, to be honest, uh, that um, I mean, IAP really gave me that platform where I could interact with architects all over the world. And uh, it gave me that credibility. It's, it's that um, is that organization that you serve, and it really if you serve it well. It really does open doors. You know, you get uh, you get exposure to so much. Um, it was only through that that the Artesia opportunity came about, and uh, it really it's the, it really opened the world. I mean, we were doing events or attending events. Uh, in over 20 countries in two, those two years. So you know, that was a fantastic time where, uh, where you're interacting with the fraternity, with like-minded people, with architects from all over the world. And, uh, you know, people that uh, you never thought that you would, uh, I mean, people that you actually never thought you would actually see their work. Not only did you see their work, you actually interacted with them as well given the opportunity. Yeah, I think institutes are important from that point of view, especially for, I mean, any younger architects who are uh, listening to this, that they really help you, uh, you know, find, uh, find your footing in terms of uh, your, I mean, you're almost bouncing off the credibility of that organization. So say if you're, if you're working in a large office, I mean, if there are 100 people in that office, that networking aside, all of that, maybe that office can somewhat help. But if you're not, then the institute becomes such a critical place. And now, uh, you know, what our institute is trying to do uh, is come up with co-working spaces. You know how COVID has really changed um, how people are expected to work. So the institute is coming up with these uh, co-working spaces where, you know, the, the people who are just starting can actually rent out at a very good rates yes. and they don't have to worry about uh, you know your office expenditure and space like that and really focus on design and then when you are starting so you're just one person or maybe you're two or maybe you're three so when you are in a collective where there are 50 other people like that so you know that energy feeding off ideas you know uh, learning from each other uh, all of those things can help you with that education after school yeah so either you get it in a big office you know where you're kind of slowly learning the ropes but that takes its time that's one way but this way when you are in a, in a shared space so and of course all the activity that the institute does it really keeps you connected with what the other architects are doing there is no other way other than uh, the institute I mean, if uh, their audience is so much larger, yeah. the access to not only the entire country, but you know, to the whole world through their affiliations. 
and I'm guessing the the institution as well as I mean it's a really interesting um, idea of the co-working within the Institute for Young Architects and that's something um, you know I would fully support and hope it continues and, and I'm guessing that you know this continuing professional developments um, is that something that your institution assists with essentially exactly yeah. so uh, the PCAT the regulatory body right so the one that I mentioned earlier, which you need to register with uh, for your license. Yeah. So they uh, they have IAP, which is the institute. They are the executive arm of uh, that regulatory body. So for you to now uh, renew your license, you have to have CE3 points, you know, CPD points. You have to have that continuing education program development and all of that. So yes, IAP is the is is the body which is organizing those workshops, which is organizing those seminars, which is organizing those trainings, uh, that rivet workshop that I told you about when I was sharing the one that I introduced for the members, that also had weightage for uh, CPD. So, you know, it all added towards, uh, towards that. So, yeah, they take, uh, the Institute takes this job very seriously and uh, they are there for the members and ensuring that they do you know, get get the work from this membership. Yeah, it sounds like a very similar setup to what the Architects Registration Board do, and what the RIBA do. So it's it's that that's that's absolutely fantastic. So similarities, um, yes, absolutely. My next question is is where do you, I guess, where do you stand on this long working hours culture? I know you work in practice. You know, you you you're a business owner. You also um, do some teaching at the university, so I'm just wondering what is what is that sort of long working hours culture like, and you know, and what what are your thoughts on it? I think that could be like a whole whole podcast on its own, right? I mean, if you start, uh, especially from this teaching perspective, because you know I've been very closely associated with the Indusvalley School of Art and Architecture. That's my alma mater. That's where I went to school. Uh, but after that, I also, I mean, you know, step by step, I, I was the president for their alumni association. So I saw the school from the alumni point of view. Then I also got the opportunity to serve on the executive committee, which looks at all the implementation of, you know, how the school is run. And after that, I was only the second alumni of that school to be inducted on the board of governance. So, you know, we're just looking at uh, the policy making of the school and looking at the school, you know, in the next 25 years and the next 50 years, where do we want this going? Yeah. And along with all of that, I've also been teaching part-time. So I've taught studio for a good number of years, and I've taught this course called professional practice and project management, for which we even had you as a, a guest speaker for, yes. I think, two years now. So you know, I've seen I've seen in this institution and thus the culture. And when I think back of my time uh, as a freshman in architecture school, it was almost like this thing. You know, you are in architecture school, so just you're gonna move in here. You know, you're never gonna go home. You'll be working all night. You will be doing this. This is the way it happens. There is no other way. And I mean, you are kind of in an impressionable age. So you think, okay, yeah, it happened this way. My seniors are also here. You're also doing the same route. And 
falling in the same sort of cycle. Mm. You know, you have uh, dark eyes in the morning trying to force yourself up with a, a shot of coffee to be ready for a presentation. And, you know, now that you've seen it with the hindsight of experience and then seeing it from a teacher's point of view and from a school's point of view, you almost wonder that, I mean, uh, was that just working hard or, you know, just working uh, under the influence of the culture? Because it really wasn't working very smart. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I mean, long hours, when I was working in that office that I told you about, there used to be a lot of people who would stay back late just so that the boss would see them and, you know, they would get impressed, oh, look at this guy, uh, you know, he's working late and this and that. And these things even then used to annoy me. I mean, the working hours are nine to five. I've done my job, whatever part of my assignment was for that day. If I finished it, I finished What's this hanging around later just for the sake of it? So yeah. I find this, this culture to be uh, a bit overrated. And I teach that to my students, okay, as long as you're doing justice to your work, don't cut corners as long as you're giving it your all. I mean, it's, I mean, I would be more impressed if you did a fantastic presentation in the morning and then after it's done, you told me that, you know what, I got six hours of sleep last night. Yeah. Yeah, that's impressive. As opposed to this other chap who does well, but he says, hey, you know what, sir, now I have to rush back home because I haven't slept for two nights. So, <laughs> You know, it's uh, it's it's a little bit of a give and take. So I I do try to teach them that it's uh, it's not bigger than your health, it's not bigger than your well-being, mm. and uh, these long hours have so. Uh, I mean, computer-aided design has really helped in that aspect as well, right? Yeah. I mean, whether you know when at midnight when we used to sit and we kind of be done with our design and we're ready to make our model for school. I mean, no matter how good or bad the design was, it was going to take the whole night to make that model. Yes. Right? And to realize it at about five o'clock in the morning that, you know, <laughs> this is not turning out good at all. It used to be heartbreaking like anything. And I remember the panic and I remember, you know, feeling, uh, feeling bad about that. So at least with computer-aided design, at least I think that's what SketchUp has really helped with. Very quickly, you can do these volumetric studies. You can, uh, you know, in an in, in an hour or in, a, in an hour and a half, you have a very good idea of what your uh, project is uh, going to be aesthetically like, uh, and you don't have to actually spend that entire night uh, doing that. So, I think. Uh, people listening, my verdict would be that I'm all for working smart as opposed to working long, long hours just for the sake of it. Fantastic. No, fantastic. And just, just, to, just to add to that as well, even now when I go in and I, I do um, crit work with a, a university uh, in Manchester, um, I... I'm always amazed at the you know, the students putting 
all this work into the the presentation into the into the design <clears throat> and they spend very little time preparing for what they're going to say in the presentation or the timing of the presentation and i keep telling i, I see this re repeating every single time and every single year and i'm trying to impart on the, the the lecturers to say please tell your students of architecture to spend at least i don't know 30 percent of that time on preparing the presentation and what you're going to say because that can make the difference the big difference the, yeah. and you think covid helped in that because i felt it helped that aspect of it because they had to choreograph all the presentations became online so they literally had to choreograph their presentation and i felt that they kind of improved on that they knew exactly you know what they're displaying uh, of course, the drawback was you could never see the entirety of the presentation at one time. Yeah. But the good part was that they were really focused on what they were showing on the screen. So sometimes when students used to uh, just, you know, get a little bit off track and not really be focused on what they should be, I felt that these COVID-driven presentations online, it really helped the students focus on what's important. You know, they have to make sure that... Uh, uh, they make the best of the time that they have. Yeah. So I hope now that they've gone back to uh, in-person presentations, I hope that those lessons have not been lost and they are doing uh, the same streamlined sort of work in their presentations as well. Absolutely. I hope so too. What are the biggest challenges that you face running um, or in your case, leading a, a practice um, you know, what, what are the biggest challenges? Well, the biggest challenge, of course, in a small setup is how you are responsible for the business as well as the design. And uh, architecture students or young architects really do not have, you know, that education given to them in school, at least, in what running a business is like. So this is something that you kind of have to learn the hard way. Uh, sometimes... You know, in the day-to-day -day running, I really miss uh, that studio environment. So whenever that opportunity happens, when you know, you're focusing on the design aspect of the project. So I still love that. So, you know, it's not something that you lose. I mean, yes, it's fantastic to have these, you know, CEO-level meetings. And, you know, you're looking at the big pictures, you're discussing budgets, uh, you know, feasibility, all of that, big numbers. But I think deep down inside, we're all those, uh, you know, we're creatives at heart. And the real joy of the profession still comes. And for me, that happens really after uh, office hours. So mm -hmm. when, you know, the business time is over, that is really when I get to um, go into my creative mode again and in my design mode again and uh, really sort out, you know, the the direction to hand on to others if this is how we want to move in this project and this is what we want to do because in the day the challenge is you're juggling calls i mean you know you are troubleshooting you are uh, trying to get business trying to seal the deal you know the creative process has to kind of take a back seat which yeah. i miss during the day and i absolutely love it uh, you know when the music is on and your, you know, your creative juices are flowing, almost feels like you're back in school. So you kind of connect with that older part of your life. 
Fantastic. My next question is slightly different. It's your, it's your biggest frustrations about practicing as, a, as an architect as well. Well, uh, I think the frustration as an architect, I think kind of is a continuation of um, what happens in architecture school, at least here. And I am quite sure it happens pretty much everywhere. So is that effort versus reward scenario. Mm. So, you know, we've all, like we were discussing, we've been up countless nights working on presentations, working on our design, falling in love with it, thinking it is the best thing that could have uh, been produced. And then, you know, not getting that reward in return in terms of either it was a grade or it was, an, you know, a jury that you couldn't convince. So those sort of uh, setbacks or frustrations can actually happen in in architecture practice as well, where you've done really well. You think that you have, if this is the best way this project should be going, but you are not able to, you know, either get the project for XYZ reason. Mm. So, you know, that effort of yours is gone or that effort is not being compensated with the kind of fee that uh, you should get, or thirdly, you're not able to, you know, your version is not accepted 100% by the end user, by the client, and you have to make uh, some changes or some compromises that you're not 100% on board with. Yeah. And you fight the fight, because it can't be a fight, because, you know, it has to be a dialogue. It has to be, uh, that is really where your you know, people's skills come in because you have to get your point across. You have to tell them in a very professional yet firm way that you hired me for my expertise and I'm saying this, 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 this way is the way to go because of this, this, this reason. And I expect you in your better judgment to, you know, <laughs> respect my call because that's why you hired me. And sometimes, you know, when when those things are disregarded for a whim, okay, oh no, we saw it at XYZ's house and we wanted that way. You know, I mean, what does that XYZ house has to do with your project? Nothing. Yeah. Those are completely different things. They're doing something for a... So, you know, those challenges can be frustrating at times. And I have found that uh, because of A, our dealing with our teachers, are dealing with our uh, jury members and then our dealings with our clients. I think it kind of helps us become well-rounded individuals. So yes, the frustration in the long run helps you maybe become a more well-rounded individual, which I think maybe your wife would be very happy that you are, your children are happy that you are. Yeah. So there are some benefits to that learning as well. I mean, I remember, you know, my uh, my children, well, not my children, they were really young at that time, but we were being interviewed for the most prestigious school uh, for my children to go to in Karachi. And uh, I remember my wife being, you know, really scared. Hey, oh my God, how would that interview be like? What if they ask this? What if they ask that? You know, it's going to be, I'm, uh, you know, sweaty. I'm petrified of uh, what's going to happen. And I told her, relax. I've been through architecture school. Nothing in that interview can be worse than, you know, all that we've gone through 
you know, with, with our juries, you know, with our clients sometimes. So architecture, I mean, it's, it's different. Uh, I mean, it's not like if you're trying to blow our own horn as such, but architecture education really does give you such a well-rounded sort of exposure to different facets of life also. Yeah. So it's an education life as well as as much as education in design or as education in planning, etc. Et so, I mean, Alhamdulillah, uh, you know, very grateful to God that uh, uh, this is the profession that I chose and very happy to be in. Oh, I love that answer. I love that answer. It's, it's fantastic. You've got apps like Pinterest and your Instagram. You know, our clients coming to you now and, and seeing a fantastic building and saying, oh, I want one of these. Yeah, it happens all the time. But in all fairness, I think um, Pinterest and Instagram usage has helped the client verbal communication mm. or communication in general with us because first they, they could not visually share what they were thinking. So yes, uh, they can share like 15, 20 different ideas, at least to understand, you know, what visually they're thinking, because, you know, we take for granted, I'm speaking to you and you're speaking to me and we're speaking in a, in a language that we're both familiar with as architects. Yeah. So we're not worried, is my point not getting across? But that is a genuine issue when you're speaking with times. So I feel visually these tools have helped. I just have, it's like an ethical issue, really. It's almost like you are, you know, you are like kind of selling almost uh, like a product. And I don't know if there is anything uh, wrong with that or not, but at least the way, you know, we were at that cusp, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, getting our education. And we were almost on that threshold of old school versus new school. So I do find, you know, that, uh, that clash within me also. I absolutely uh, understand the benefits of it and I've seen people benefit from, well, you know, selfless promotion uh, all over, you know, social media of this, that uh, project, that project, or all of that. And at the same time, I feel that, you know, we are professionals like, you know, how lawyers are, how doctors are, and uh, I mean, you know, no brain surgeon is like, you know, putting up videos of this, <laughs> you know, the latest microscopic incision and, you know, plastering it off uh, on uh, all over social media. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually looking for an answer to this as well to help me because there is a part of me that wants to for the improvement of my business. I want to embrace that. Yet I'm also skeptical if I do not respect uh, completely respect others doing it at the moment, how will I then, you know, judge myself? So I'm looking for the answer and I will not only, I mean, of course, I will be listening to other people's podcasts in this series, but I will definitely be looking out for this answer and see what others uh, have to say and what their opinion is on it. Yeah. Because it is something that I'm still uh, trying to come to terms with. I don't think we see enough of the day-to-day -day process of an architect in uh, a place like um, a country like Pakistan, for, for example. Right. Yeah. It's um, true. Yeah. That aspect of it is definitely worth highlighting. I mean, there is something to share with the world, right? So mm. then, like I said, if I have to, uh, 
I have to find uh, the answer that's right right for me. Yeah. And maybe uh, maybe working on holistical uh, overview of architecture and not specific to my own. Yeah. Maybe that may be a good way to start, and then you can get comfortable with the idea as you go along, and then uh, you can start. No. Also, I mean, there, there's another drawback, by the way. So we have intellectual property, intellectual property problems there as well. Another aspect of it that scares us is if that has happened, I've seen visuals of my projects being copied and pasted on somebody else's, you know, social Ooh. media profile saying, hey, this is our project and stuff like that. And there is really not much you can, you know, do about it rather than complain. I mean, how many are you going to stop? So there are people who are not even qualified. Uh, like I said, now getting business through social media is relatively easier than word of mouth because all of those things are based on reputation on what you've done. On social media, yes, we've got fantastic stuff as well, but you also have the opportunity where people are taking other people's things and just packaging it and saying, hey, look, we can we can do this too. Wow. So that's something to be uh, wary of as well. So that's another aspect that kind of, uh, you know, worries me. Yeah, that's a bad side, definitely. The last question I have for you is, what is the best thing about practicing architecture in your country? You know, for example, um, I mean, this is again from an outsider's perspective. So whenever I visited European cities, so generally wherever you go, they kind of look complete. You know, it looks like this was done 200 years ago <laughs> and it kind of is kind of like the finished product. There is not much to do. Uh, and when you look at, you know, places like Karachi or other cities in Pakistan, you still find that that identity is yet to be shaped. So that opportunity is still being there okay, to contribute toward what the, what the urban you know, outlook of Karachi is going to be like uh, and have your own little you know, footprint in there somewhere. I mean, that is fascinating part of a, the developing world like Pakistan. Here, you also have a lot of independence. I mean, if you get, like I said, because, you know, you develop that rapport with your clients. So when they come to you, you do have a lot of free hand and you do have larger holdings sometimes also where you have, you're working on houses which are 15,000 square feet sometimes. Wow. So, you know, they can be massive houses and, uh, you know, having that uh, liberty having that uh, uh, opportunity to design multiples of those um, is something that you don't get to hear too much of in the developed world as such. Yeah. Um, so, so the opportunities are still here. You know, like, uh, yes, of course, as we move to the future, things will change, but one can say that the architectural history of London, for example, is pretty much written uh, as, as in yes of course things will are modern buildings are coming up yeah. things are being replaced but there is a I mean when you think London you do get that picture of something and that has been there for a while but our architectural story is still 
needs to be written so that is a very interesting way of looking forward to here that there is a lot to do now i'd just like to say something about the architects benevolent society this is a society that is dedicated to supporting past and present members of the architectural community and their families in times of need from those starting out on their careers to those who are now in retirement. They help people who have experienced illness, accident, redundancy, unemployment, bereavement or other personal difficulties. Now support ranges from confidential advice to financial assistance. Now my um, ask to you all who's listening is consider giving a donation. Um, there's many ways you can do this and you can even volunteer for the ABS and even fundraise. And also you can also leave a gift in your will. So who do the Architects Benevolent Society help? Well, architects, architectural technologists, landscape architects and employees of architectural practices but also uh, the dependents of, um, of, of the professions I've just stated there. They also um, help and support students of architecture, architectural technology or landscape architecture. Now for more information on eligibility and to apply for help please go to the ABS website which is ABS net.org.uk Thank you. Please share, subscribe and comment to support the channel. The Book Architect Architect.